This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning, the scripture passage is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and he saw him, and he passed by on the other side. So likewise, Levi came to that place and saw him, but passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him down on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, more, whatever more you spend, I will pay you when I come back. Now which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is God's word. Please be seated. It's good to be back at New City. Um, last uh, weekend, I had the privilege of being at and teaching at uh, an RUF fall retreat. RUF is a college ministry of our denomination, and we're fortunate to have quite a few uh, UCF RUF students here. And then additionally, got home Sunday, and I took off uh, Monday, and I went to the West Coast, not of Florida, but of the United States, and uh, took part in some training there. And I was telling Trisha on Wednesday as I was headed back that I felt really disoriented. And uh, I think more than the travel and more than the time zone changes, I felt disoriented as I reflected upon it. I, I realized I was disoriented because I hadn't been here in so long. Uh, that I, I love coming here on Sundays. This is an anchor to my week. And it orients me uh, back to the gospel and reorients me to life. And I was just feeling disoriented uh, because I wasn't here with you all uh, enjoying um, uh, worshiping Jesus together last week. So I genuinely say it's really uh, good to be back with you, my family, uh, this morning. So we're going to continue on um, through our series, which is through the unique passages in the Gospel of Luke. And so this morning we come to this very famous story of the Good Samaritan. And I, and I would dare say, even if you're only remotely familiar with the Bible, uh, you've heard this story. And I would even say, if you have no biblical background at all, uh, you've at least heard the phrase in our common vernacular of uh, the Good Samaritan. But, but I want us to realize that the parable, uh, as an invented story of Jesus, th- this parable is actually part of a real conversation. And the conversation is between Jesus and a Jewish lawyer. So, so that means that he was a, a student of and a teacher in the Old Testament law. Uh, not necessarily, not at all, in fact, um, a lawyer in the sense of being a lawyer in the Roman civil uh, uh, society. And, and so he, he's having, Jesus having a real conversation with this lawyer. And I think in this conversation, we're going to learn so much more than the definition of a charitable person. 
I, I think about this passage as beautiful and brilliant on so many levels, and I kind of uh, think about it like a holographic image or a holographic card. And what I mean by that, a holographic card, um, uh, maybe if you're a baseball card collector, there were some of those cards where if you looked at it from one angle, it showed one picture, but if you turned it and looked at it from another angle, it showed a different picture. Um, maybe if you uh, ate Cracker Jacks like I did, sometimes the prize was this holographic image where you could look at it straight. Uh, I've actually seen some that, that, that show three images. If you look at it straight, turn it to the left, and turn it to the right, you see three different realities. And I actually think that's the best way to understand this conversation and to understand this parable. The, the three are certainly connected. We're, we're going to explore that connection but I want us to really take time to see each of the three images and study them uniquely. So these are the three. Uh, between Jesus and the lawyer, in their conversation, we're going to learn about a way, a way to eternal life. We're going to learn about the way to eternal life. And we're going we're to learn about the way of life for those who have graciously been given eternal life. Okay, so if you have your scriptures, uh, get them out. We're going to start up at verse 25. We're going to begin with this uh, look at the text as a way to eternal life. Okay, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. And so Jesus must have been teaching. Uh, The lawyer stood up to ask him a question. He's checking him out. He's gauging his competency. And he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so the Old Testament, um, in in Daniel 12, Psalm 36, the, the Old Testament alludes to this eternal inheritance uh, that God's people will, will receive in the future. And this eternal inheritance is not just a, a life without end, but it's, it's a life of particular and glorious quality. And, and so the, the lawyer was assuming he had to do something to get that life. And so he asked Jesus this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers his question with a question. Whenever you're trying to trap Jesus, he's going to ask you a question to your question. Just a little note. So if Jesus asks you a question, first of all, that's pretty cool. Like, write it down. But secondly, it's probably because you're asking him a question, okay? Verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus says, you're a lawyer. What does the law say? He's saying summarize it. He he can't give him all the five books of Moses. He's saying summarize the law. And so I'm thinking the lawyer was wondering what Jesus thought of the law because Jesus was hanging out with sinners. And as soon as he hears Jesus say, well, just summarize the law. That's what you have to do to have eternal life. He's like, okay, cool. He goes from questioning mode to teacher mode. So he starts to teach Jesus. Verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So this is a particle of comparison. So in other words, love your neighbor as well as you love yourself. Uh, Love your neighbor as if your neighbor is yourself. Love your neighbor like you would yourself. Now this is the common summary of the Old Testament law that can be found in all the Jewish writers of Jesus' day. And in fact, Jesus himself agreed with this summary in Mark chapter 12. This is exactly how Jesus would summarize the law of Moses as well. And so verse 28, he agrees. He's like, yeah, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Just do that. It's simple. That that is a way to eternal life. Just love God utterly and love your neighbor equally, just as well as you would yourself. And so if you're new to the Bible, I want you to know Jesus is presenting a way to eternal life. Listen to what you have to do. If you're going to avoid the gift Jesus wants to give you, this this is all you have to do. To begin, 
You have to love God with all that you are, with the totality of your being. So every ounce of your entire being has to be lived for God and before God. So just to begin, live consciously in God's present, present and live continually for God's glory. This is the first half of this way to eternal life. So I was listening to a sermon recently uh, by a pastor named Tim Keller. He preaches in New York City. He's brilliant. And he said something to this effect. He said, you can know whether or not you love God supremely and utterly by what you think and feel when nothing is happening and when everything is happening in your life. And he goes on, he says, ordinarily, we live our lives in that place between nothing and everything. But when on occasion we have nothing demanding our attention, what do we feel and what do we think about? He says the person who loves God utterly instantly begins to daydream about and ponder upon the excellencies of God, his beauty, his glory, his majesty, his worth. On the other side of the coin, when life comes crashing down on us and everything bad that could happen uh, does happen, you can know if you love God utterly by whether or not you're joyful and hopeful. If God is all we want, regardless of what is happening around us, our joy and our hope are intact because we still have God. Because God created us, because God gives us every breath we breathe, it is only fair and right and just that we love him utterly. We should live before him and for him. And so Jesus is like, yeah, you got it. Do that. Eternal life will be yours. Just love God utterly and, oh, by the way, uh, tackle your neighbor's problems with the same tenacity and velocity and creativity and urgency as you tackle your own. So, so the lawyer, this is shocking to me, but he's, evidence, he, he's evidently convinced of his love for God because he, he wants to figure out the limits of this love your neighbor part. He's like, man, that's an awful lot, loving your neighbor as well as yourself. Man, that's, that's a big deal. Where, where does that start and, and where does that stop? And so, so he comes back to Jesus, and who exactly is my neighbor? And so again, common dialogue among Jewish lawyers, among this man's peers, was this concept of who is your lawyer? Because loving God with all that you have and loving your neighbor as well as yourself is, uh, they're, they're actually quotes from the Old Testament. And, and so in the Jewish teaching of his day, nobody considered anyone outside of the Jewish nation as a neighbor worthy of love. Further, the Pharisees and others considered some Jews to be unworthy of love and service. And so, so the lawyer is saying, so Jesus, exactly, who is my neighbor if I'm going to earn eternal life? And so again, Jesus, instead of a statement, gives a parable, and then he gives another question. And we're going to say the parable in a bit, but just for now, look down at verse 36. After the parable, Jesus says, he asks, who do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers, the priest and the Levite who walked around the Jew or the Samaritan who went to the Jew in an effort of love. Don't miss the big picture point. The big picture point is that the Jew in the road was the neighbor of the Samaritan. And this was shocking and and this was huge to Jesus's audience. For a thousand years, the Jews and the Samaritans had hated each other. Okay, a thousand years before, Israel, Israel was, a, was a united kingdom. It was unified under Solomon, 12 tribes. Due to the folly of his son, Rehoboam, uh, the kingdom splits. Ten tribes to the north, Samaria. Two tribes to the south, Judea, Jews. 
In 722 BC, Samaria, the north, falls uh, to the Assyrians. And the Assyrians take the elites of that society away, and they bring the elites of other societies, other peoples, into the land, and they have them live together. And so over time, uh, those to the north began to intermarry with these brought into the land by the Assyrians. And so the south began to not only label them as as rebels who left the kingdom, but now as half-breeds intermarrying with Gentiles. That's around 700 B.C. The southern tribes were later overthrown by the Babylonians. And and when they returned uh, to build the temple and to rebuild the wall, the Samaritans come south and they offer to help. The tribes to the south say, no, we don't want your half-breed help. (laughs) Get out of here. So the Samaritans are like, oh, okay, well, we'll just go build our own temple. They build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And in 128 B.C., uh, the Jews decide that the most holy thing they could do is go north and destroy that temple. And so they do. The Jews, two tribes to the south, and the Samaritans, ten tribes to the north, they hated each other. In their own mind, one of the hardest things they said, one of the harshest things the Jews said to Jesus in his life and ministry was, you're a Samaritan and a demon-possessed man. A Jewish writer in the first century wrote this about Samaritan women. And by the way, this is crude. This is a fourth and fifth graders out of the service comment. He said, Samaritan women were menstruants from the cradle. That is to say they experienced their menstrual cycle at infancy. That is the disgust between the Jews and the Samaritans. You can actually see it in verse 37. The lawyer can't bring himself to say the Samaritan. But his answer to Jesus is, uh, the one who showed him mercy. And so all the commentators speak to how incredibly hard it is for us to hear this and to hear the shock and the scandal that would have reverberated through the room when Jesus answered this man's question this way. And so all the commentaries give, give contemporary versions, you might say, of the parable to help us feel it in our gut what they would have felt that day. A little older commentary, an Irish Republican fell among thieves and an Ulster Orangeman came and helped him. An American Christian fell among thieves, and an elder and a seminary professor passed by on the other side. But a communist came to the rescue. A white colonialist fell among thieves, and a black freedom fighter came to his aid. And that's probably the closest to it right there when you consider the racism and the oppression of the Jews towards the Samaritans. So that is a way to eternal life. What you can do to be saved, right there, that's, that's it. Love God utterly and supremely and love your neighbor as well as yourself. But remember, the concept of neighbor includes your enemy, uh, the one that's treated you the worst. Love and serve your enemy with the tenacity, velocity, creativity, and urgency with which you love and serve yourself. That is a way to eternal life. That is one look at our picture. But I feel as though it's only fair that I tell you actually that um, Jesus knew and we know and even Paul knew that this way is theoretically true, let's say, but it's humanly impossible. Theoretically true, humanly impossible. In Romans 10, Paul does say if a man could be truly righteous according to the law, he would live and have eternal life. But Paul said in Romans 3, no human being will be justified declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law, since we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all failed to love God supremely and love our neighbor equally. So this way to eternal life is theoretically true, but impossible for us. That said, good news. 
Turn the holographic card directly in front of you and, and see that not only is this story a way to eternal life, but this parable and this conversation is the way to eternal life. All right? Second point. I'm going to make a statement. I'm going to let you think about the ramifications of that statement. I'm going to prove my statement, and then we're going to make application to our lives because of the statement. Here's the statement. You ready? I do not believe that Jesus wanted the lawyer to primarily identify with the good Samaritan in the story. I do not believe that Jesus wanted the lawyer to primarily identify with the Samaritan in the story. So if I read this parable to you and I say, who do you identify with? No doubt, some of us, because of a hellacious week, we would say, I identify with the half-dead guy in the middle of the road. <laughs> That's me. Some of us, including me, would ashamedly say, based on my going around need all week long, I, I have to acknowledge I'm the priest or the Levite. Some of us would say, well, I don't necessarily identify with the Good Samaritan. I think I'm primarily supposed to identify with him in the story. But, but if you were to ask, if I were to ask you, who do you think the lawyer identified with? And more importantly, who did Jesus want the lawyer to identify with? I think most of us would say the Good Samaritan. That Jesus wants him to hear this story from the position of the Samaritan. But friends, that is virtually impossible. In fact, along with a lot of commentaries, I believe Jesus wanted the lawyer to identify uh, with and, and listen to the story from the perspective of the dead guy, not the Samaritan. Most of this parable, looking at it directly, is addressing the lawyer's desire, verse 29, to justify himself. This is not negate what we just said about a way to eternal life. This is not negate what I'm going to say in the third point about the way of life for those who have been graciously given life. But just look at the holographic image straight on, okay? Think with me. This parable has always confused me. I've always thought that Jesus could have done a much better job labeling the characters in the parable because for the longest time, I thought he wanted the lawyer to associate with the hero of the story. I thought, why didn't he say a Samaritan fell among robbers and a lawyer went to him and acted like a neighbor. Stay with me. I would submit to you as soon as Jesus said in verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. Uh, the, the lawyer right then knew exactly who he was in the story. Now there was good reason to go to Jericho and to go beyond Jericho to the Jordan River. But listen, the vast majority of travelers on the Jericho road were actually going north into Galilee. But instead of just going due north, downhill, through Samaria, they would go downhill, around Samaria, up the Jordan Basin, and back uphill into Galilee. The road, in, this road in Jewish literature was so notoriously dangerous. It was 17 miles between these two cities, and it dropped 3,000 feet in elevation. And, and, and in the hairpins of the road and in the curves of the road, uh, thieves and thugs would stay there. And in the caves surrounding these mountainous areas, uh, in these caves, the thugs would, would live there. And, and, and out in the desert stretches, um, again, the thieves would, would hang out, and they would attack anyone who was dumb enough uh, to go on the Jerusalem-Jericho road. But the Jerusalem leaders actually told the Jews that if they were devout and if they wanted to be righteous, they would brave the Jericho Road when traveling north instead of just going straight through Samaria. It would be like this. Going I-4 east to I-95 north to I-10 west to I-75 south just to get to Gainesville. 
I know that there's nothing nice about Ocala, but, but if you like had this aversion to Ocala and you refused to go through Ocala because you thought you'd become unclean, I know there's no good reason to stop in Ocala, except for maybe Sonny's barbecue or something, but that's, that's essentially what goes into the lawyer's mind and most travelers' minds when they went from Jerusalem to Jericho, is I've got to get around Samaria. So right off the bat, I think the lawyer identifies with the traveler who fell among the robbers. Further, Jesus says, verse 31, by chance a priest was going down the road. There is no way the lawyer thinks of himself as a priest. Next, in the pecking order, um, uh, Jesus says, verse 32, likewise, a Levite. Okay, the, the, the Levites actually worked for the priest, and the lawyer would have never assumed himself to be a Levite. He wasn't born into the right family. And if Jesus was going to keep going in the pecking order, you would, you, you would expect a scribe or a lawyer next. But Jesus just shocks him, and he doesn't allow him to think of himself as the hero in the story. He literally says, Samaritan, though, as he journeyed, came and saw and helped. Maybe you're catching my drift. Jesus is not primarily saying, be the good Samaritan to earn eternal life. Okay, well, while you do have to be as good as the Samaritan in order to earn eternal life, Jesus, through this parable, is introducing the lawyer to another way. He, he's, in, he's, he's, he's introducing to him the way to eternal life. Jesus is saying, own it. Embrace it. You trying to justify yourself. You're the dead guy who needs mercy from the one you've treated like an enemy. In the parable, if you just look at it directly, Jesus is the good Samaritan. In the Gospel of Luke, he just traveled through Samaria. No one in the Gospel of Luke except for God and Jesus ever experiences compassion, verse 33, or ever gives out mercy, verse 37. This is Jesus. You see the massive difference between exactly what do I have to do to earn eternal life and who am I already in the middle of the road who can receive eternal life? Huge difference. Are we to feel compassion and give mercy? Absolutely, sure, yes, of course, that's next. But Jesus is teaching us that first and primarily, we have to experience God's compassion and receive his mercy. Listen, he's telling the lawyer who wants to justify himself, he's like, you can't earn eternal life. It can only be received by mercy from a compassionate God. He is saying the Jewish religious system of which you are a part is going to walk right past you. In fact, go around you in your efforts to justify yourself. Your enemy is coming to you in compassion and mercy with all the resources needed to help you. That is the only way to eternal life. So again, in a minute, we're going to discuss the way of life for those given eternal life. But before we hear Jesus teaching us about loving our enemy, we have to see Jesus loving us as his enemy. Before we, we, we hear the call to move in and to move towards poverty and towards brokenness, to move away from our comfortable enclaves, before we hear that, we have to see Jesus leaving the comforts and the riches of heaven and taking on skin and moving into our world and moving onto our street and moving right next door. Before we hear the call to become poor and pouring out our resources for the broken, we have to see Jesus' blood pouring out in his naked bankruptcy on the cross. 
Before we hear the call to risk our lives for our neighbor, we have to see Jesus not risking his life, but giving his life for us. Jesus is the only human being who ever loved God supremely and loved neighbor equally. He's the only one who ever earned eternal life. That Jesus took that righteousness and that justification and he went to the cross and he took our sin and our shame and our unrighteousness and he gave us as a gift everything he earned. We were unrighteous, we were sinners, we were enemies of God. When you look directly at this conversation and at this parable, if you don't turn it to the right, if you don't turn it to the left, this is not about earning salvation, nor is this about being a fictitious person named the Good Samaritan. This is about Jesus as the Good Samaritan, saving people who could do nothing to save themselves. But we're not done. We have to tilt the story one more time. We have to see uh, in this conversation and in this parable the way of life for those graciously given life. So we're going to look back uh, in the text, but I need, I need you to hear me. This is not a way to life, but this is the way of life for those who have been given life by grace. The scriptures are clear. We do not change to earn God's love, but we change because of God's love. Okay, you have to, I have to know that you know the difference between those two. All right, the, the verse 37. The lawyer said... <clears throat> The one who showed mercy proved to be a neighbor. And then Jesus turns the picture and says, go and do likewise. Not do this and you will live, but go live and go alive and do likewise. So so Jesus is clearly communicating to us that in response to the gospel, we are to go and live a life just like the Samaritan in the parable which means we're supposed to move forward living like Jesus. Let's consider a few ideas. What does it look like to go and do likewise? And let's just be honest with ourselves. Let's just answer the question. Does my life look anything like that? You you see, the gospel of Luke assumes that the Christian's life uh, will be such a radical living out of the gospel that people will have to hear the gospel in order to understand why we're living life the way we are. And so let's just look at the Samaritan's radical life. Let's just ask ourselves, is anyone asking me about my life and how I live it that way and why I live it that way? Are you with me? Go and do likewise. Okay, first, to go and do likewise is to embody this truth. Talk is cheap. Love is expensive and emotional action. Love is an expensive and emotional action. Just a huge contrast between the lawyer and the Samaritan is that the lawyer talks and the Samaritan acts. A commentator wrote, prolonged debate and routine routing to committee are the time-honored methods of shunning collective and individual responsibility to the hurting. He wrote that about Presbyterians. Another facetious uh, commentator suggested this, that the priests and the Levites were in a rush to attend to a meeting on making the Jericho Road more safe. The irony of the text is the Levites actually handled what we would call the deacon's fund or the internal mercy fund for the priests. And they go around a half-dead guy in the middle of the road. Talk is cheap. Love is an expensive, emotional action. Emotional, verse 33, compassion. 
He saw and he did not look away. He did not go around, but he looked until his guts were moved. That's what compassion means in the Greek. His guts were moved and that emotional internal move caused a physical external move towards the one hurting and dying. It's emotional, but it's expensive and it's action. By the details of this story, we know that the Samaritan is rich and he's important. And he not only pays for the mercy, but he personally dispenses the mercy. Verse 33, he was on a journey. So the priest and the Levite are going away from the temple. They're off of work. Uh, The Samaritan is on his job and going to his job, and he interrupts his schedule and his agenda. He pours out his wine as an antiseptic and his oil uh, as a painkiller. He used his resources to bind up the wounds. He no longer rode his beast of burden, but he dangerously walked next to this, this, this bloody mess that he picked up and put on his animal. He brings this man to the inn. He personally, through the night, nurses the man back to life. The next day, he gives the innkeeper enough money for the man to stay there uh, from 30 to 60 days, depending on, on which historical resource you use. And he promised, I will personally return. And he emphatically states, I will repay whatever you spend. Love. Not the love that we have to do to earn eternal life, but the love that flows from those who have been forgiven uh, and those who have been given eternal life. Uh, That kind of love is expensive and emotional. Do our lives look anything like the life Jesus is commanding us to when he says, go and do likewise? Are our lives such a radical expression of the gospel that people have to hear the words of the gospel to understand how we live and why we live the way we do? Second, in our going and doing, in our lives, do we move away from pain and trouble and discomfort and danger or do we move towards pain, trouble, discomfort, and danger in where we live? in where we drive, in how we spend our time off, in how we think about ourselves on the clock, in where we join clubs, in how we pick schools. Do we move away from brokenness and need or towards brokenness and need? In the Greek, there's this obvious play on words. It's easily missed in our English translations. But the priest and the Levite ordered their lives to go around the need. Whereas the Samaritan goes to the need, he goes with the need, and he promises to come back to the one who had the need to ensure that all is well and paid for. This is not a buck. This is not a bowl of soup. This is a relationship of personal investment that sees a man transition from abject poverty and death to flourishing. Are we so radically going towards pain and trouble and discomfort and danger, that people have to hear the words of the gospel to make any sense of the expression of the gospel in our lives. Lastly, in this command, go and do likewise. Do our lives resemble the truth that our neighbor, the one we're responsible for, the one we're responsible to love this way, our neighbor is not the one who lives in proximity to our house, But the call is to be a good neighbor to anyone in proximity to me as I walk through life. Do you see how Jesus changes the question in verse 36? The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? To the lawyer, neighbor is an object. 
But to Jesus, being a neighbor, it's literally neighborly. It's an adverb. He doesn't say, who was the neighbor in the story? He said, who proved to be neighborly to the man who fell among the robbers? And again, I just have to ask, are we living our lives in such a radical way that people have to hear the gospel to make sense of the gospel that they see in us? One of my closest friends was 18 when he moved into the most dangerous part of a southern city. And at first, he just worked blue-collar jobs and lived the life of a good neighbor. He would be a friend. He would enjoy people for what they brought to the table. He would meet any needs that they might have with the resources that he legitimately had. And eventually, after probably uh, close to 10 years, he started an organization that, that engaged his neighbors in meeting the needs of the neighborhood. More than a decade later, a church is planted by the neighborhood, for the neighborhood, with the dreams of changing the whole city through the neighborhood. One day, my friend was yet again being robbed at gunpoint. And he told, uh, based on the color of his skin in this neighborhood, people always thought he was buying drugs. They always thought he had cash. And he told the man what he told everyone. I don't have any cash on me. But if you want, you can come to my house and we'll be friends. And I'll share with you anything I have that can meet any real need that you have. In the past, that answer had resulted in him taking severe beatings and people taking his wallet to find, in fact, he had no cash in it, okay? But with this new friend of his, the offer was accepted. And, and whenever the two of them would tell the story, people would inevitably ask my friend, how did you do that? And why did you do that? You see, they, they didn't know to say it this way, but, but they, they saw an expression of the gospel in his life that demanded they hear the gospel to make any sense of it at all. And my friend would say, if you had any idea who I was and what I've done to Jesus, and if you had any idea what he did for me, what he does for me, and what he will do for me, it will make total sense to you what I did for this man. And he would quote Charles Barkley, anything less would be uncivilized. <laughs> my friend knew the Bible, my friend knew the gospel. He knew this parable better than me by a long shot. He knew a way to eternal life that was theoretically true but humanly impossible. He knew the way to eternal life that Jesus gave him by grace. And he knew the way of life that Jesus commands to those of us who receive that grace. Let's pray. Jesus, I do thank you that when we were your enemy, you pursued us. That when we were dead, you came to us. That when we rejected your offer, you overwhelmed us. I thank you for your incredible pursuit of us as a loving shepherd and a loving friend and a forgiving husband. I thank you, Jesus, that as we look at this parable, we see in you the ultimate good Samaritan. That you would travel down the road of life, taking on skin, entering into the mess to bring healing and forgiveness, hope, and life to sinners like us. Holy Spirit, please come. Please come and fill us and empower us and indwell us to live the gospel, to not just hear it, to not just believe it, to not just rejoice in it, to become the gospel. Would you take us towards those who are needy and broken? Would, would you take us towards those who need hope and forgiveness and contra-conditional love? Would you take us into this city to be your hands and feet. And people might ask us, why and how are you doing that? 
Holy Spirit, we will praise you if you would do this. We want this.